Okay, uh, Mark, uh, I think I see you there. Hello? I'm here. All right, great. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, and everyone, welcome to the Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest this week is Mark Gawiati, an analyst of Russian politics, honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin um, and The Weaponization of Everything. As I mentioned last time Mark was on the podcast, he's graciously agreed to be my guest once a month. Uh, so thank you very much for joining me today, Mark. My pleasure. All right, great to have you. Now, the last time you were on the podcast was three days before Russia launched uh, its unprovoked invasion of Ukraine or its massive new invasion of Ukraine. And one day, I believe, before Putin made a very dark speech, now I guess one of several very dark speeches, um, but one that in retrospect at least seemed to make it clear that he decided to take this step, uh, this unprovoked step and invade Ukraine. I feel like a disclaimer is, is almost in order here before we try to discuss this war and how it may progress, um, because Putin's decision really has led to so much absolutely needless suffering, death and destruction that it's hard to deal with. Uh, it's really hard to fathom, but it's been happening for almost a month and it does not seem likely to stop soon, despite the negotiations that have been taking place. Now, I guess I'd like to discuss uh, the war through uh, the prism of, of those negotiations. Both sides have suggested lately that there's been some progress and outlines of a potential agreement have even emerged. Um, that would include some sort of neutrality um, preventing Ukraine from joining NATO uh, and, and some kind of security guarantee for Ukraine, uh, but also with a very diminished military uh, capacities. But, and there are clearly many major obstacles, such as Russian demands uh, that Ukraine accept Crimea as part of Russia and accept uh, two provinces in the Donbass as independent states. Uh, and in my mind, at least, but I, I think officials in the West and particularly in countries near Russia have brought this up. Another big question involves Putin and Russia and, and the future, essentially uh, after all the civilian deaths uh, Russia has caused, uh, all, all the pain and suffering, the, the brutal siege of Mariupol, uh, and much more, you know, how could a deal that eases sanctions against Russia or does, does little or nothing to, to punish Putin and the Kremlin really be accepted by both Kiev and the West? Um, essentially, how could, how could things continue with business as usual or, or close to usual? And on the other hand, would, would Putin be ready to accept a deal uh, that would fall short of the kind of over-the-top goals that he seems to still have? Is he really looking for any kind of an off-ramp or a negotiated solution at this point? Uh, Mark, what's your view on these negotiations? Is it a real process with a chance of yielding an agreement? Is Russia just playing for time, kind of buying time while it tries to inflict further damage on Ukraine? and take more territory after the failure of what is widely believed to have been a plan to remove um, President Volodymyr Zelensky's government or force its, its surrender, I'm sorry, within a few days of the invasion on February 24th, which obviously 
did not happen. What, what do you think is going on here? Well, look, I mean, let's start with the most basic point about whether or not these are real negotiations or an attempt to buy time. I don't believe that argument really holds water because it's not as though the hostilities are stopping. It's not as though while the negotiations are happening, the West is pausing its armed supplies, the Ukrainians are stopping their resistance and so forth. They are essentially two interconnected but parallel tracks. So, you know, this, yes, I think this is, this is a genuine negotiation. Now, it doesn't mean that it's in any way uh, a, a fully fair or good faith one, but it is a negotiation because, in part, apart from the fact that clearly the Russians failed in their initial attempt, I mean, there's no question now they're taking over all of Ukraine. There's no question of that sort of night, nice, neat transfer of power to a puppet regime that clearly was their sort of bizarre opium dream of a plan. At the same time, there are all kinds of indices on which time is actually not necessarily on Russia's side. I mean, the, the most important one of which is clearly the, the economic damage which is taking place, because after all, there are two, again, two parallel wars. There is the battlefield war being fought with phenomenal effectiveness and bravery by the Ukrainians. And then there is the non-kinetic war that the West is fighting, an economic war, but also a cultural and legal and political one. And that is causing damage and damage that is leaving already scarring, which will take a long, long time to, to, to fix. And then there are also some rather more kind of specific concerns. The thing that interests me is that, you know, we know that conscripts are being sent into the war zone. Even though by Russian law, conscripts can't be sent abroad, except when a war has been declared. And this is, after all, not a war. It is a special military operation by law. So instead, they have been induced to, quote unquote, volunteer, sign up saying, yes, I'd, I'd love to be sent to a, to a foreign war. But the point is, we're coming up close to the spring draft, when not only does that mean that a whole bunch of new young men are going to be called up, and one of the interesting indices will be what's the level of draft dodging this time round, but also it means that the people who have called up a year ago will start becoming yembelli. They will start becoming ready for, in preparing for demobilisation and return to civil life. Now, what this means is that there's going to be a gap. Now, OK, the majority of the soldiers in Ukraine are professional, so-called kontraktniki. But you know, there are conscripts there, and there is clearly a, a, a shortage of, of soldiers. Unless the Kremlin is willing to you know, declare martial law, admit this is a war, do, so, do something else, which would definitely run counter to its narrative that, oh, everything's on, going to plan they're going to face a bit of a shortfall because you can't just take someone who's just been conscripted, give them a gun, give them two days training and, and put them in a war zone and have them anything other than the, the most um, digestible of cannon fodder. Um, and also boys are going to start coming home, back home, and telling them stories of where they've been and what they've done, which is going to have an impact. So I think there are reasons why actually, I mean, Putin, I think, must have accepted that he's not going to get his first choice. The very terms that the Russians are talking about, clearly, uh, well, I hesitate to say a defeat, but pretty much they are a defeat in, in, in light of, of, of the gamble. The problem is this. There is a myth that the Russians have got something called the de-escalate to de-escalate sort of doctrine. 
Uh, the idea is that actually you start a war, you get somewhere, and then you do something dramatic like sending a tactical nuclear weapon somewhere to try and freeze it at that point. That doesn't really uh, hold true. However, it's clear that what they have is we could call an escalate to negotiate strategy at the moment, which is we're seeing a major upsurge in, in attacks and violence, particularly in places like Mariupol and Sumy. Really, I think, because Putin wants to have a few more victories, a few more cities under his belt, cities which we could think of as variously either hostages or bargaining chips, precisely for the peace talks. And the trouble is that again, as one gets closer to some kind of potential agreement, the Russians will escalate their fighting. The Ukrainians will be all the more determined to give Putin a bloody nose, precisely to make him more receptive. And also the rhetoric actually tends to escalate on both sides. So I think you know, for all these reasons, it, 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 it's going to get uglier before it can get better. But on the other hand, I, I, mean, I think there are some very, very cautious grounds for some kind of optimism that a deal of some sort will be possible. And yes, I mean, you, you've sketched out the sort of terms that Ukraine would agree no longer to be you know, seek NATO membership. That would require a constitutional change, but Zelensky himself has basically acknowledged that. Presumably, Ukraine would be forced under some form to actually recognize Russian control over both Crimea and the Donbass, quote-unquote, People's Republics, which is no real loss in the sense of, although the, Russian, the, the Ukrainians talk a great deal about their sort of, you know, sovereignty of their borders and so forth, in practice, Crimea is lost, and those bits of the Donbass, and again, I think it would stress, it would have to be just those bits of the Donbass, would be so difficult and expensive and problematic to reintegrate that in many ways it actually makes Kiev's life easier by getting rid of them. Um, and, and in return, obviously, the, the Ukrainians would, would need to have proper security guarantees, and I mean real security guarantees, not the, the ones that, that so manifestly failed. They would need to have a lot of assistance. You know, we'd be talking about some kind of martial aid plan of sorts from the West. I mean, it's the, the West's price for not getting involved more kinetically. And I think what's also really crucial would be they would expect and require and frankly deserve at least their candidature for joining the European Union to be recognised by the EU and also you know, acknowledged by, by Moscow. Um, you know, they, they need that as well as deserve that, I think. And in that context, I mean, although it wouldn't necessarily be easy, I think given Zelensky's phenomenal status now as a national leader, he could probably pull it off. The, the only other thing I want to say, though, is about sanctions. Because you've got to remember, sanctions, it's, it's, a, it's a separate war, it's a separate process. There is no question at all about some kind of forgive and forget moment to return to the status quo. We are, you know... So long as Putin is in the Kremlin, we are not returning to the status quo, anti. So there would actually also have to be, I think, again, as part of this deal, some lifting of sanctions, not all of them, but some of them, but certainly the ones you know, which are much more on the military industrial complex and everything associated with it would, I'm sure, remain long term. But any such sanctions lifted would, would probably be phased and would be... Um, done in such a way that it takes place after the Russians have fulfilled their part. So, for example, only after they have demonstratively moved not just people, but also materiel away from the, from the border and, and such like. So, you know, it, it, it will be a slow process. And therefore, I think, you know, we're not talking about anything that's going to get resolved quickly. 
but it's not impossible that it gets resolved. But last point I'd make on this. All this is still entirely possible to be um, derailed by the facts on the ground, by Putin's own you know, increasingly erratic and kind of bizarre notions of what this war is about and what Ukraine really is. Um, if he honestly feels that it's in his interest to, for example, escalate, and there's sort of terrible possibilities of things like, like chemical weapons or worse being used, that, I mean, that, that would, I think, mean that all, all bets are off. And I think it would require the West to, let's put it this way, recalibrate its response to, to Putin and, and his regime. And in some ways, the worst thing would be if, if, if the Russians have some small breakthrough somewhere, that might lead them to be overconfident and think, actually, we don't need a peace deal at all. Um, and then we could be back to you know months months of conflict before, as I think will inevitably happen, the Russians acknowledge that they are bogged down and they need to extricate themselves from this war before they completely trash their economy. All right. Well, thanks very much for that. I, I, I don't want to add very much. Um, just wanted to, uh, I mean, I guess we'll be finding out uh, we may have some clues in the next few days or, or weeks about, you know, how, how that's going in terms of, you know, is Russia going to make some some breakthrough or something that would change the situation? Or, or on the other hand, is it going to suffer, suffer a defeat that would that would um, change the situation radically or, or substantially? One thing I'd mention is just the question of you mentioned EU, you know, EU membership or the opportunity for that for Ukraine would be interesting. Well, I mean, to see, uh, since you know, some people say it's really more, Russia was more afraid of, of uh, Ukraine joining the EU uh, than, than NATO, some say. So, you know, uh, how that would sort of uh, play uh, is, is potentially another factor, I guess. Um, True, but if, uh, if I can just jump in on, on that absolutely. one point. I mean, that was absolutely, back in 2013, that was the big concern. Um, and when they realized the, the implications of, of, of the Ukraine-EU deal, particularly in terms of a, that essentially it would lock Ukraine out of the Eurasian Economic Union, that was kind of Putin's kind of cosplay EU attempt. But I think we have to recognize the degree to which the world has changed. I mean, it, you know, even if there's a peace deal, the thought that Ukraine will happily get back involved with high levels of cross-border trade let alone continued dependence on Russian energy and the like. I mean, they're, they're long since gone. I mean, basically, Putin has done the, the seemingly incredible of finally completing the repeatedly stalled state-building project of Ukraine. He has absolutely unified Ukraine across linguistic, ethnic, national, religious and regional lines as ne never before. And this Ukraine is not going to be a friend to Russia again for, I would have thought, generations, if, if, if that. So I, I, I think that in some ways, um, you know, again, we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, who, who can really peer into the deep, dark crevices of Putin's brain these days? But I, I, I think that actually we've moved into an, another era in which actually, if, if one looks at, at Putin's more recent statements, it was always about it was about NATO membership and it was about the prospect of NATO troops on Ukrainian soil, regardless of whether or not Ukraine was already a NATO, NATO member. It was this notion that Ukraine would become sort of airstrip one, um, a, a forward base. 
So I, I, I think the, the days when people like Blasiev were sort of agitated by the thought of the impact on cross-border trade have repla- been replaced by much more um, geopolitical and kinetic concerns. Right, absolutely. So it's it's a very much a changed uh, landscape. Okay, um, thanks for that as well. I guess the second question you mentioned uh, uh, the situation in Russia with the economy um, as one of the factors in the war itself. I'd like to ask a little bit more about that. The situation in Russia, no comparison to Ukraine, of course. Physically, physically, the war has not touched Russia. Um, but the landscape or the atmosphere in Russia has changed pretty radically in the past month since the invasion of Ukraine. Some people are fleeing, uh, I believe tens of thousands. Sanctions are hitting the economy. Western companies that have been part of the fabric of Russia for years, like McDonald's and Ikea, are pulling out. Uh, And the state is stepping up efforts to enforce support for the war, both by punishing dissent and trying to whip up patriotism. In a speech last week um, that you called um, as ominous as it was bizarre, uh, Putin called on those, or he referred to those who oppose the war or are leaving the country for the West as traitors, uh, and he had some other words for them as well. In some ways, this is a continuation of the crackdown um, uh, that was ramped up after Alexei Navalny was arrested upon return from Germany in January 2021 following treatment for a near-fatal nerve agent poisoning that he blames on Putin. But it feels like uh, the crackdown, the clampdown, um, the oppression has taken an even more severe turn since the invasion. Uh, the imprisoned Navalny, by the way, is scheduled to hear the verdict tomorrow uh, following a new trial on what he contends are fabricated uh, fraud, embezzlement charges, And prosecutors uh, want him sentenced to 13 years in prison. Now, for years, um, the authorities in Russia refrained from putting Navalny in prison for long periods of time. And I guess the sentence in this case, uh, now he's serving two and a half years and would be due to be out, or is currently due to be out, I believe, in 2023, in the middle of 2023. But I guess the sentence in this case will be yet another sign of the times Uh, And yet uh, we've seen protests and some indication of cracks in Putin's propaganda machine, at least, um, had Marina Ovsanikova, the state TV editor who burst into the newsroom on Channel One during a live broadcast last week uh, with an anti-war sign. Um, And she said the government is lying and that Putin is responsible for what she called the fratricidal war in Ukraine. Now, Mark, this is a broad question and one that may be hard to answer, but um, what do you you think? Where where is Russia headed? Um, And will that actually depend on what happens in Ukraine? Well, I mean, my view is that Russia is headed at speed to the late 1970s. We have an increasingly gerontocratic uh, authoritarian regime because However much Putin may from time to time have been toying with the idea of stepping down, he certainly is not going to do so on anything other than a high note. And I don't think he's got any high notes ahead of him. And more to the point, given that in this kind of a system with no meaningful um, legality at the top, to step down is to place your fate and your fortune in the hands of your successor. And in these circumstances, particularly given that Putin is not a man who trusts easily, 
I'm not convinced that he could do that. And I think, again, he will hold on to that generation of people around him because, again, that's that's what he tends to do. If you look at almost all of the people who really matter in this system, they're in the same generation. They're 69 to 72-year-olds. And many of them, like Foreign Minister Lavrov, have been trying to be allowed to retire and not allowed to. We also have heard that apparently about, um, not, 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 not in any way a Putin crony, but uh, the chair of the central bank, Nabulina, who sort of submitted her resignation but was told no. You know, you can see that Putin has a tendency to try and fix this, this sort of system around him for his own security. So we're, gonna, we're likely to get an increasingly ageing bunch of people running this system with, I would suggest, diminishing legitimacy. I mean, it, all, it had already been going down. And never mind the little kind of occasional bumps and troughs caused by sort of the, the events of the moment. And I'll come on to the impact of the war in a sec. But generally speaking, we had seen this clear downward trend. And at, what, at the last elections... We saw the United Russia's real vote was probably, you know, somewhere in the 30 percent. And likewise, actually, the, sort of the, the best indices of Putin's trust ratings, which are different from his approval ratings, are around in the 30s. So, again, I think that pretty much, and I, I should say I meant 30s in terms of 30 percent rather than 1930s, although one can draw certain parallels. But anyway, I mean, this is a system which clearly now has, has, has a minority legitimacy, which is only likely to diminish further especially because of the continued and you know, probably wor- you know, definitely worsening economic situation. Because this is it. The economy is, the best it can hope for is stagnation. I mean, how, how's, how's that for a, for a prognosis? Um, you know, generally, we're going to find it sort of more and more in, in, in crisis, which is obviously going to lead to a key policy divide, which we're beginning to see already, between technocrats and siloviki in terms of their prescription. In other words, do you try and sort of fix the economy by economic means, or do you basically try and use state power and, if need be, repression and, and control? And overall, this regime will therefore, as a result, increasingly be dependent upon repression. You know, it, it's losing the last vestiges of what was actually a real kind of degree of constitutionalism and popular mobilisation that it did have. You know, it, it was a strange hybrid regime once upon a time. Well, you know, for years we have seen that slowly diminish. Well, now we're seeing the last elements being swept away. So as I say, in some ways, late 1970s, well, well, welcome to, to, to late Brezhnevism. But, of course, first of all, today's Russians are not the Soviets of the 1970s. Very, very particularly, I mean, they know what they are losing, what they have lost. And I think this is this is going to be a really important point, because it's not about, you know, can I can I envisage a better future? It's actually I remember a better past. As a result of that, we're also getting obviously the real resistance we've seen. And again, one one really has to recognize that what I I forget what the current uh, figures from OVD info are. And it's what, 17,000 Russians have been arrested for protesting against the war. Well, given that to protest in this kind of system is not like protesting in the West. You know, it, it is to know that you are very likely to be arrested and that arrests have very serious consequences. I mean, that, that is a really um, dramatic and impressive feat. Um, you know, to say nothing of, obviously, the, the open letters we have seen, people re- resigning, retiring, just leaving the country. You know, if we really, I mean, again, 
sanctions that actually basically blocked so much exit routes for Russians. If we had been truly Machiavellian, what we would have been doing is actually laying on more planes, not locking them off, so that you know, the more smart Russians who wanted to get out got out. But that's another matter. Likewise, there's also still a struggle going on within the system. Again, I mean, although obviously there were the first glimmers of the kind of desire for some sort of reform in, in, in the late 70s, you know, here it's much more clear that there is, again, crudely sketched a sort of technocrat versus Silovic struggle for where the hell do we go from here? What kind of measures do, do, do we adopt? And that's visible in everything from, like, obviously, particularly economic policy. Um, but also, I think that sort of stretches more broadly. And we're likely to see that. Um, the support that the regime has is, I think, very much based on mythology. I mean, there are these polls that suggest a, a majority of Russians support the war. What we have to remember is what they support is the war that they are told that Russia is fighting, which is a very limited and surgical military operation to prevent Ukraine from getting nuclear weapons or otherwise imposing a, an existential threat to Russia and to prevent these, this neo-Nazi American-dominated regime from committing genocide against the ethnic Russians and Russian speakers of the, the Southeast. Now, all of which is absolute nonsense. But the point is, you know, for many, particularly now with the kind of constraint taking place on social media and the like, um, you know, that, that's what, what they got. But look, I, I, I tend to, again, sort of because it's a hobby horse of mine, because that's what I did my PhD on, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And one of the things that really struck me then was that people believe the, the lies they're being told, even though they know they're being told them by liars, just because it's easier when it doesn't seem to directly impact your life and when you have no independent measure to test it against. However, for example, in Afghanistan, when the boys started to come home or worse yet, didn't come home at all, or, you know, when there's that, you know, Kolya's son from down the street comes back and he's only got one leg. Suddenly, you know, you actually do have an indication of, well, OK, what was really going on? And it's amazing how quickly the official or acceptance of the official line can, can crumble. So, again, I mean, I think we, we shouldn't assume that those kind of polls at the moment will actually reflect how people think about the conflict once they have real information about what it's like. Um, and at the same time, again, in its own way, the late 70s system was, I mean, yeah, it, it was stable to the point of stagnant, and that was part of the problem. But it's interesting that we're seeing already scapegoating within the security apparatus, which is, after all, you know, increasingly going to be crucial as the, the basis of, of Putin's authority. We've seen you know, disputed accounts that Deputy Director of the Federal Security Service, Colonel General Sergei Biaseda, has been put under house arrest. As I understand it from my sources, it is true. We've seen the deputy head of the National Guard being sacked. Claims that, again, obviously the, the, this is never actually meant to be about the war. It's about embezzlement in one case, leaking information in the other. But in fact, clearly, this is part of the quest for scapegoats because the boss can never be wrong. And therefore, who was it who misinformed him or who was it who has failed to live up to their obligations and so forth. Well, 
at the moment, Putin's control over the security apparatus is is still seems to be you know intact and, and, and complete. But nonetheless, as we get more of these kind of internal disputes in a circle, circular firing squad beginning to form, things could change. So broadly speaking, although I think it's the late 70s, it's the late 70s on fast forward. And I don't think we're necessarily going to see the current status quo lasting for another decade. I mean, obviously, there's going to be no real change while Putin is in the Kremlin. We have to acknowledge that. But... On the other hand, in, in the slightly longer term, I mean, Putin could fall or Putin could, you know, and someday mortality will do its bit. There's all these suggestions that he might be ill. You know, I think if if one wanted to look for, and you know, you, you know I always try and do this, find something potentially positive out of the situation. It could be that this time Russia will actually get to complete the um, uh, only partial and in- incomplete reform process that it went through in the 1980s and in the 1990s and even in a way in in the noughts, but never quite following through. So just as ironically, Ukraine has in this ghastly and terrible way, finally sort of found itself as a nation. Maybe at some point, maybe Russia will come through this and in the long term, finally manage to break out of a lot of its old habits and the, uh, constraints of the past. Uh, it's absolutely uh, fascinating. I mean, obviously huge um, changes, but, but potentially afoot and momentous uh, times. Um, obviously uh, extremely painful to, to watch what's going on. Um, I'm gonna, we're, we're running out of time, uh, but I want to take a few questions if, if, if there are some. Um, uh, so we'll have to wrap it up soon, but uh, I'd like to take a couple of questions. Now, one was sent in uh, by a listener, and it has uh, so related to what you were just speaking about. Um, uh, the question is, um, is it likely that Putin will be overthrown from within soon to save Russia's economy, uh, if not the Ukrainian people and sovereignty? So I guess that's a question for you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll try and answer it briefly. I mean, unfortunately, soon, given the, the presence of that, of that word means, unfortunately, I think the answer is no. Um, if one looks at the two successful coups that have taken place in Russia in the last hundred years, the one that toppled Khrushchev and the August coup, which was then in due course derailed by people power, what they both required was a unity of purpose between the political elite, the military and the KGB. And I think this is it. The, the, the Russian system is, is built in such a way that I don't think any one specific element, whether it's even the military, could, short of a very bloody, almost civil war, take power without some of the other elements involved. And to form that kind of a conspiracy is really very difficult, especially so long as the FSB and the FSO, the two domestic, primary domestic security agencies, are still loyal to Putin because they precisely they watch and, and, and penetrate everyone else. So I think that it would have to be some way down the line that even these particular ruthless so-and-sos consider Putin to be so dangerous to them that he has to go. Um, You know, it's going to be closer to the situation whereby Nicholas II was persuaded by his generals in 1917 to step down than a kind of 
1989 people powering the streets sort of scenario. All right, thanks for that, uh, Mark. And I guess um, if there are any other uh, listeners with questions, you can uh, believe you can ask by or requesting uh, to speak, uh, and then we can possibly single out one or one or two questions. We still have a little bit of time. Hi, uh, if, if anyone has, uh, of the listeners has any questions, uh, I think you can try to ask by requesting to speak and then we could uh, maybe take one or two questions if, if there are any from the listeners. Um, I'd like, to, um, Michal Maloney is my own name. I'm in Ireland. I follow Radio Free Europe a lot. So I, I just like to ask, is there a future for Zelensky in an as a leader of an independent Ukraine beyond beyond this? I mean, look, for, for what it's worth, I, I, I'm not a Ukrainian specialist, so the, treat this with, with a certain degree of, of caution. But I mean, I, I think that this war has absolutely been you know, quite dramatic in its impact on Zelensky. I mean, I remember talking to some Ukrainians six weeks ago, it must have been now, who are you know, more on the, the sort of nationalist side of politics who were absolutely criticizing Zelensky, saying they didn't think he had the backbone necessary um, to deal with these troubling times. And yet, I mean, I think he has delivered a devastating and convincing response to that. I mean, you know, he really has become not just a, a really powerful symbol of, of resistance within the country, um, but a very, very effective advocate for Ukraine's interests out of it. And even if one just looks at however trivial it may sound, I mean, just the the visual contrast of the sort of Botox tyrant in his bunker compared with Zelensky out there in his T-shirt, out in the streets of, of, of Kiev and demonstrating his defiance and not least such sort of eminently memeable lines as, you know, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, I mean, at the moment, I think his kind of approval ratings are over 90%. Now, again, there's an element of artificiality of that in the middle of a time of war. But the point is that although sometimes wartime leaders cannot really transition effectively into peacetime, and here I'm thinking of Winston Churchill, um, I, I think that given that Zelensky, let's say, was not a wartime prime a wartime president in the first place, I mean, I, I would be surprised if he didn't, unless the peace is on vastly less um, favourable terms than than I would imagine. And to be honest, I don't think the Ukrainians are currently signalling peace at any price. Well, as I said, unless something like that happens, I, I would imagine the answer is yes. But as I said, you really need to talk to a proper Ukrainianist for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand what you're saying. The longer it goes, the less tenable it will be. But I, I completely agree with you. He has, he, has out, he has outgrown himself in the last, in the last few months and I think exceeded the expectations of just about everyone around him. Um, quite, quite. Thanks, thanks very much for your time again there, folks. Really enjoyed the, the space. Uh, thank you. And yeah, as you, as you say, that's one of the things that this, uh, this, this horrible war has, has, has kind of changed. Uh, one, of the, one of the many things. Uh, and we're going to see 
a lot more change uh, in the future. Uh, do we have any other questioners, questions? Okay, um, I will, running out of time anyway, and I will end it on that note. Mark, thank you very much for joining me, and I hope to talk to you again uh, next month. Always very happy to. All right, uh, and uh, I'll be back again next Monday. Uh, meanwhile, please keep an eye out on Friday for my Week in Russia newsletter. Thank you very much for listening. Take care.